Uh, if you're wondering where we're going next, I'm praying over two books, the book of James and the book of Galatians. So uh, pray with me, and we'll be going to one of those two books as we move on on Wednesday nights. But tonight we're finishing up Second Peter. We're going to look at verses 15 through 18 in chapter 3. Let's read them together. And if you don't mind, why don't you stand up if you're uh, physically able to. Stand to your feet. Let's read the word of God together. It says this. And regard, 2 Peter 3.15, the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You may be seated. Peter wrote this letter to encourage the ongoing growth of believers. The goal after you get saved could be simply put in this idea of growing. You're born again. Now you just need to grow. A baby's born into the world, and its one job is to grow. It's to grow into everything that we would hope that child would become. We often, as parents, quote the verse, train up a child in the way that he or she should go, and when they grow old, they won't depart from it. And that has the idea of grow, go, going in the direction to which God has gifted them. Of course, first and foremost, to know the Lord. But then to stay on the path or run in the lane that God has for you. That's what God wants you to do. He wants you to grow. And growing is a two-way street. God has all the resources Early on in the letter, we read, everything that pertains to life and godliness is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us everything we need. But just because he gives you everything you need is not a guarantee that you're going to grow. Your growing will be closely connected to how much effort you put in. We read a list in chapter 1 about applying different things, applying diligence and moral excellence and brotherly kindness. There are things that you have to do that promote growth. They promote healthy growth. You think about eating habits. You think about exercise. You think about what you watch, what you listen to. These all have to do with the shaping of your mind, the shaping of your body. What you put into yourself, in your mind, in your body, produces an outcome. Uh, there's maybe not a big percentage of our population is in shape. Why? Because there's only one way to be in shape. You got to work out. And if you don't work out, you will not be in shape. It doesn't come by osmosis. I have news for you. You can put on that belt that they sell on late night TV. Have you seen this one? Just put this on and you'll end up with a six pack. And it just vibrates while you eat Rocky Road ice cream or cookies and cream. You will not end up with a six-pack. Quite the opposite. And so you have to, there is something that you have to do. You have to apply yourself. Your Christian life is not something that you should just mail in or that's what I just do on Sundays between the hours of 
9 and 11 or whatever those hours may be. No, you're supposed to give your best to God, to love him with all your mind, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. This, this sounds like it is something that God wants your effort. He does want your best. He deserves your best. Don't you agree? He deserves all the love that we have to give him because it is a relational love. I want to give my best to my wife. I want to give my best to people that I love. And it's no exception with God. Now, Peter wrote against, over against the backdrop of exposing false teachers. Mature, growing believers will not make the same mistakes as immature believers. So young believers, or we, we can sometimes think of younger people who lack experience and maybe they haven't run into all the same things that we who are older have. Sometimes it's easier to be duped when you're immature. Immature believers often are duped by false teachers. Why? because they don't know as much of the word as you may know. They don't have as much experience. Maybe they haven't run into these false teachers before. So they hear someone talk about Christ, salvation, use some of our language or lingo. And they could be quickly snagged by a false teacher. But not everybody who uses the name of Christ, who talks about salvation, or who even waves a Bible in front of you, is necessarily of God. So Peter is writing to believers that they not be tricked, not be fooled, not be duped. Don't be naive. We are to grow in the grace and knowledge. Growing in grace and knowledge protects you from a whole host of problems. Let me mention just a few. It protects you from stagnation. It protects you from uselessness. It protects you from fruitlessness. And the opposite of that would be Growing and active, it would be useful and fruitful. That's what Peter said in chapter one. If you do these things, they render you neither useless or unfruitful as it relates to the kingdom of God. A growing Christian is not going to be duped by the things that a Christian who's ignorant is duped by. When I say duped, I mean fooled, tricked, snagged, brought into the wrong way. And one of the things that these teachers were saying is that they were denying the second coming of Jesus Christ. They were saying, where is the promise of his coming? And in so doing, it seems that they were saying, you could live however you want because Christ is not gonna come back in our generation anyway. And so since he's not, you can live it up because grace, grace, grace. And they were saying that you can do whatever you want with your body because of God's grace. And that's just simply not true. Peter, in light of the day of the Lord, look back with me at verse 11, says these words, chapter three, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, talking about the day of the Lord and the judgment by fire, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Since all this stuff ultimately is going to fry, it's not gonna last how should you live in response to that reality? Do you believe in the second coming? I think everybody in here would say, absolutely. Then what, ought, what kind of person ought you to be to live in the light of the second coming? Christ is going to come. You're gonna give an account one day of your life, what you did in the body, whether it was good or whether it was useless, to your Lord. When your Lord comes, how do you want him to find you? 
hopefully active. Go to the book of Luke for a second. Luke chapter 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four gospels. Luke 12. Look at verse 34. These are the words of Jesus. Luke 12, 34. He says, for where your treasure is, Luke 12, 34, there your heart be also or will be also. Be dressed in readiness, Luke 12, 35. Keep your lamps alight. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up remarkably and wait on them. When we were in Israel recently, uh, Shane, my oldest son, took up a project. He said, Dad, I want to redo our garage while you're gone. And I said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. My garage is a disaster. I should say was a disaster. Now, I would clean my garage. Maybe some of you could relate to this. I would clean my garage, but I would basically, when I clean my garage, move piles around. Can I get a witness? Anybody? So I'm not clean. No, you can throw things away. All right. Anyway, so, but we have some pack rat uh, tendencies in our family. I will not name names for political purposes. Anyway, to keep peace in the house and all that. So, because this stuff is recorded. Huh? So anyway, so, but anyway, we're in Israel for like 10 days. I came home and Shane and others, others that he had recruited, who I, I thank the Lord for those people as well, uh, including Nathan back there, worked really hard. They redid my garage. And we came home to a new garage. They were busy while the master was away. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I, I, I trained them to call me Lord and master. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. <laughs> but anyway, it was cool to come home to that. They were, they were busy bees. They had put in many hours. And uh, I will say that we were so jet lagged when we got home, we probably didn't show all the excitement that we could have shown for the garage but one of the major priorities we did accomplish that night when we returned from Israel, we had Miguel's. Because when you're in Israel, there ain't no Mexican food. It just doesn't exist. So there's two things you're longing for food-wise when you come home to the States. Miguel's and In-N-Out. All right? So I've accomplished... I ate Miguel's every day for about five days in a row. Anyway, not sure that that's the best thing, but there you go. Now, whether he comes... In the second watch, Luke 12, 38, or even in the third, and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. A thief probably doesn't call you up on the phone and says, hey, uh, about 2.35 a.m. Uh, this morning, I'll be trying to break into your side door. Just to give you a heads up on my plan. No, thieves don't work that way. They come at an hour when you don't expect it. Peter said, notice Peter who wrote our letter. Um, actually, verse 40 says, you too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And Peter said, the author of our letter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward? A steward is a manager of somebody else's household or possessions. Whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. 
Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and he begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him. At an hour he does not know, and sadly will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers." And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes, keyword many. But the one who did not know it, committed deeds worthy of, flog, of a flogging, will receive but a few. And from everyone who has been given much shall be required. And to him whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. I've come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. There are many times, if you turn back to Second Peter, that Jesus addressed the return that he would make. He promised he was coming again. That's straight from the mouth of Jesus, so you can take it to the bank. That's captured in Day of the Lord language in the rest of the New Testament. Jesus is coming again. And of that day and hour, the Father knows uh, I believe the Son knows now. On the earth, Jesus said, only the Father knows, not even the angels know. God knows the day of the hour. God has fixed that day. I don't know. Now, I can have an idea of the signs of the times. I believe the Bible teaches that we can understand the season of that coming. But whatever time that you live, we're to live in the light of the second coming. And somebody might say, well, what about God's delay, though? The, the skeptics, the mockers have been asking, well, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they did from the time of creation. And we get an answer, and Peter responds, the Lord, 2 Peter 3, 9, is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why is God patient? Because he doesn't want any to perish, but what? Here's how you know God's heart. God wants all to come to repentance. God has put off the return of Jesus Christ for one reason, according to 2 Peter 3, 9. The reason he's been slow about it, if you want to count it as slowness, although to the Lord, a day is like what? A thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. So for the Lord, it's not been slow. To us, maybe it's been slow. But in that slowness, in that patience, what has it meant for the world? It has meant that many more, a harvest of souls, has come into the kingdom. And so 15 of 2 Peter 3, we are to regard or count or bear in mind the patience of the Lord or of our Lord to be what? To be salvation. How many more people have been saved if, let's say, for example, Jesus returned in 65 AD. Peter's writing this letter somewhere between 65, 66, and 68 AD. Let's say that he returned right before Peter died. Now, Peter might appreciate that. But 2,000 years of church history wouldn't have happened, and there would be a lot less people in the kingdom over the last 2,000 years. How many people have entered into the kingdom of God? I don't know. Would you, would you agree millions and millions and millions? Yes. And if the Lord had returned in the 1950s, 
Michael Lance isn't in the kingdom of God. And I take that quite personally. See, I regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Now sometimes, and this is biblical, we, we know the Bible says Maranatha. What's that mean? Come, Lord Jesus. We want the Lord to come. But when do we typically say, oh, Lord, just come now. Come now. Here's when it is. Let's get real. It's not across the board, but I think this is true. I haven't been feeling good for quite a long time. It would be nice if the Lord comes now. Uh, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. Right? Jesus, come now. We have our reasons to want to ramp up the coming, but I'm not sure there are always reasons related to the kingdom of God. I think sometimes they're largely related to the kingdom of Michael. Everybody with me? We sometimes, and I'm not saying this is true across the board, but I know for me, if I were to analyze the times when I have really said, oh Lord, just come now. It's usually because my personal world wasn't going as well as I would like it to go. Just come, Lord. Everything's messed up. The people are messed up, right? Freeways are messed up. But what we want to do is understand that the Lord's delay, the divine delay, has meant salvation for a number of souls. And what God wants from you and from me, please hear me well, is productive waiting. Shane did my garage while I was in Israel. That was what I call productive waiting. Nathan helped with the garage while I was in Israel. That's, that's what a father calls productive waiting. Right? Usually when you leave your house, you say to the kids, don't burn the house down. Right? I will say, Husto, because I got to give credit where credit is due. Husto, my great in-law, my brother, was productive while waiting. You weren't really waiting for my return. I, this is not a great picture, but anyway. <laughs> but he was helping with the garage. Now, let me, <laughs> let me use the analogy and I'll widen it. How do you think God wants you to wait for his return? Well, I don't know when he's going to come, but I don't know. I think I'll just eat some of this and crank up my lazy boy. I'm being a lazy boy anyway. And I think I'll just... What do you think he wants? See, if the world is going to experience salvation, the tools to bring that message of salvation is you and me. Productive waiting means in concert with God Almighty, I preach the gospel so I can get as many people in before that coming arrives. That is productive waiting. And the guy writing this was super productive. The first 10 chapters of the book of Acts are about Peter preaching in Jerusalem, preaching, then affirming the preaching of Philip in Samaria, preaching in the Gentile house of Cornelius, and opening the door of the gospel to Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile. Paul, who's going to be mentioned in the next few verses, or at least the, one of the verses, was productive from Acts 10, really on the rest of the book of Acts, is about a man named Saul who becomes Paul. What does he do? He goes all over the Roman world, pushing as many into the kingdom, if I can put it that way, as possible by preaching the gospel in Athens and Corinth and anywhere else he went, planting churches and being productive. You've got so much time, 
so do I. Same 24 hours in a day, you get to decide how productive you wanna be. It's that simple. And Peter says the way you need to look at God's delay, if you will, if you wanna put it in the language of delay, God's patience is because God wants a bunch of people to be saved. In fact, God doesn't want anybody to perish. He doesn't want anybody to end up condemned in hell under the judgment. And so he waits. And he is so patient. He is much more patient than I am. He's extremely patient, even to the degree that a thief on the cross can say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And there are people that you know, some people that you would say, man, I never thought this person would ever even be open to the gospel. And one of your friends has been saved recently. Some of you may be shocked. Man, I never thought he was gonna become a Christian. And that friend, that, that family member is now a believer. Thank God for his patience. Thank God that Jesus didn't come back five years ago or 10 years ago or even 10 months ago. For some of us, right? For some of us, we've just recently rededicated our lives and we are regretting the, the years we gave away. And we're saying, I wanna redeem the next decade or two or three to the Lord. But that would mean that he doesn't come in the next decade or two or three. I'd like him to come, don't get me wrong. I wanna see my Lord. But I also know he's got business to do and people to hear the gospel and people he wants saved. And the question that he asked in Luke 18 is when the Lord comes, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What do you think that means? Does that mean, do you think he'll find believers or do you think he's saying when the Son of Man comes, will he find his people busy about his business? He does say in that same section, occupy until I come. And so there is such a way to redeem the waiting, the way you redeem the waiting is you're productive because our Lord's patience, verse 15, chapter three, is salvation, soteria, deliverance, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Paul wrote about God's salvation. Paul wrote about productive waiting. Here's a few verses. Romans 2, 4 says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Romans 2, 4. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, Love is patient. Remember we often say you could take the word love and replace it with Jesus or God. God is patient. God is kind. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. And then in 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul wrote, Yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me as the foremost or chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Have you ever just said something like this? Lord, thank you for your patience. How long did you fight the Lord? Are you fighting the Lord tonight? What did it take for you to yield? How many people witnessed to you? How many of your friends told you the same thing? Some of you got saved maybe after the first gospel presentation, but a lot of you fought it. A lot of you waited, and God waited for you. It's pretty amazing. Paul wrote about these things. He wrote to you, 
from the wisdom given to him from above. And Peter says, as also 16 in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, and I think it relates to the previous verse about the patience of God and the day of the Lord of the second coming specifically, in which are some things hard to understand. Now, Peter said that some of the things that Paul wrote are hard to understand. Does that give you a little bit of like, oh, cool. You mean Peter read some of Paul's stuff and said, hey, that, that's hard to understand. Yeah, that means sometimes when you read your Bible, and I would recommend if you're new to the Bible, don't read the King James. Let me tell you why. The King James Bible was written in 1611. The English language has changed quite a bit since 1611. Would you agree? That's 407 years ago. So when you open your Bible and you see the thee, thou's, and the thouest, and the thinest, and whatever, that's hard. So I would encourage you to get a modern translation because that will clear up some of it. New American Standard, New King James, ESV, NIV. Get, get a modern translation. I prefer the New American Standard, but there's some good translations out there. Some things, though, even with the right translation, true to the original text, some things are hard to understand. In fact, Paul mentions several times in the Bible that I tell you a mystery. The Greek word mystery, musterion, means a sacred secret once concealed, now revealed. But even when sacred secrets are revealed, we don't always know everything that they mean. Paul wrote some things about the day of the Lord and the revealing of the, the man of sin and, and apostasy. And he said, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. There's a lot of things. Romans 9, 10, and 11. How much debate's been about Romans 9, 10, and 11 about election and predestination and Jacob and Esau and Israel and the Gentiles. And there's been a lot of debate about some of these texts because some of them are incredibly deep. But these things that Paul wrote about in his letters, verse 16, as Peter talks about Paul's letters, some things are hard to understand. And here's the problem. The untaught amethes means the ignorant, or just what it says, the untaught, and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And notice this, to their own destruction. There are people who get a hold of Paul's letters, the bulk of the New Testament's written by the Apostle Paul, and even Peter's letters, and here's the problem. Some people are simply untaught and they're trying to teach others. I'll give you an example. Let's say that you wanted to redo the cabinets in your kitchen and you wanted to hire somebody to do that and you want a nice job and you've picked out the cabinets and everything. You don't let someone just go tinkering around in your kitchen who doesn't know what they're doing, right? You'd like a little bit of experience, like if somebody walked in there and you called them from, you know, whatever, Craigslist or whatever, they walk in there, hey, uh, how many, can you have any pictures of your job? I ain't never done this before. <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to give it a shot and I'll give you a discount price. No, 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 thank you. I want a little bit of experience if you're going to tinker with my cabinets, how much more my soul. 
There are people who have entrusted their eternal destiny to shysters, to men in the recent generations who have been proven to be false just by the records that we can see of their lives. Don't play Russian roulette with your soul. Now, I want someone who is well-informed that I'm going to listen to teach me the Bible. Amen? And there are a lot of good teachers. Turn on Christian radio, one after the other, after the other. If you're on the right station, if you're on KKLA, if you're on K-Wave, you're doing pretty well. Just about every teacher is a big gun in the Christian world. And you're gonna do well. You, have, you can have a wireless seminary. If you're in sales, if you, whatever you may do, you're in freeway traffic, redeem that time by listening to Christian radio. Get on an app of a church that you trust and listen to messages. It'll make all the difference. But there are some untaught people, the ignorant teaching the ignorant, and that is a disaster. It doesn't do you well if you are listening to someone who doesn't understand what they're talking about. And there have been records, I'll give you one example. There was a record of the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Taze Russell, who was put on uh, the witness stand in a legal court of law because he sued a pastor for libel. There was a pastor back in the day who took Charles Taze Russell, founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, to task because he was teaching false doctrine. This is in the area of Pennsylvania. Well, Charles Taze Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, sued the pastor. The case went to an open court. These are all public records. Charles Taze Russell claimed that he knew the original languages, that he was a pastor, and went on the witness stand. He was asked to just identify simple Greek letters, and he committed perjury because he didn't know the Greek language. That's the record of the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses. Now look, I'm not saying that you need to be a Greek scholar to teach the Bible. I'm no Greek scholar. I know some Greek, but I, I, I don't know half of what a lot of people know. But there are tools today where you can check yourself and you can make sure that you're on track with what the Bible teaches. And I'll just say to you, the book of James says this, let not many of you become teachers for we will incur what? The stricter judgment. When you're talking about people's souls, when you're talking about eternal destinies, when you're talking about truth about God as our creator, there's a lot at stake. Don't you agree? And so we want to be diligent. doesn't mean, you, you, you know, uh, people who are formally or informally taught, that's not the issue. The issue is whether you're cutting the word of God straight. There are untaught people and then there are, un are unstable people. Believe me, I have met some unstable Christians over the years. I heard another uh, teacher saying that he's met uh, Enoch and Elijah a couple times over the years, uh, not because he actually met them, but because there were individuals who came to him identifying themselves as Enoch and Elijah. And, uh, you know, those people are out there. There have been people along the way, that have identified themselves as Jesus Christ. We were doing a call-in radio show, and a lady called up, and after a few introductory comments, she said, I am. And we were like, what? And she said, I am, a second time. And we were like, you are who? 
oh, I am the one. And she was sitting there on the phone on a Bible answer show claiming to be the Messiah or to be God. Uh, you can make a claim all day long. There are many unstable people in the world. It is not good when they are in pulpits because unstable people who take, you know, there's a lot of what I would call religious hysteria. There are people who can take the Bible and they start to come up with some fanciful ideas. And if they bring something new to you, it's probably not true. Because truth has been constant since the word of God was recorded. And so they say, oh, well, I got some new truth, man. Here's what it is. Uh, this is the way you got to do things or you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. They have comments like that. Well, I would just say run to the nearest exit. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Untaught, unstable people, uh, they're out there. And what they do, if you take a look at the verse, is they twist the scriptures, the word, uh, the unstable distort is rendered twist. The word means, verse 16, to wrench, to pull, to distort, to move or wrench something out of its intended context. And when that happens, you can have a whole movement that's born off of a false interpretation. And they're out there, and they're on television channels even tonight. You can go home and watch some of them. But they twist the scriptures, sadly, and they twist them to their own destruction. I want you to notice that Paul's letters, Peter calls Paul's letters scripture in verse 16. You have affirmation from Peter that what Paul wrote was scripture, which is interesting because it's within the generation of these two men, and Peter is calling Paul's letters Scripture. Now, there are some skeptics. You can turn on some of the channels, the modern channels, who say, oh, the Bible wasn't put together until long after the apostles' death. At the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, that's when they decided what books in, what were books were inspired, what books were not. Well, apparently, Peter already knew that Paul's letters were inspired in the 60s AD. So all you got to do is read the Bible to answer a lot of these questions. But the skeptics don't believe the Bible. They don't believe the supernatural. And so that's kind of what you have going on here. So let me just say this. The way to avoid being duped and potentially destroyed or shipwrecked in your faith is to be well taught and to be steadfast. It's to continue to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Would you say that today uh, we have probably more resource, resources at our fingertips than maybe in any time in history. When I first started out, I wrote my sermons on a legal pad. And when I wanted to quote a scripture within the sermon, I wrote out the entire scripture, which was a good exercise, but I did it all by hand. Now today on my computer, I've got Bible programs. I can look up Greek and Hebrew words. I can take a scripture, copy it, and paste it into my notes. I have all kinds of Bible teachers, all kinds of Bible colleges. We have no excuse to be fooled, you guys. We really don't. And so Peter says, look, there are people who are changing the meaning there. They are taking the Bible, look at the end of 16, but they distort what? 
the scriptures. It's not like they're not sitting there with a Bible, but they're distorting the Bible. That tells you something. It's possible to twist the scriptures. And the end is destruction. Greek word, it means to be damned. It means to end up under the ultimate judgment of God. Can you imagine being a person who led millions of people astray and whoop, you end up one day before God? How do you think that meeting's gonna go? How do you think it's gonna go for a person who said, oh, I didn't really believe you existed. I just started a religion so I could make a bunch of money. You know who did that? L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. The easiest way to make a million dollars in the United States is start a religion, and he did. And you know how, how much money the uh, religion of Scientology is sitting on today? So much so that they started their own channel recently. There is now a Scientology channel on television. Do you know how they can afford that? Because everyone who joins Scientology is basically forced to give money until they get clear and then get to a level called OT8. And when you get to OT8, you start the whole process all over again. And by the time you get to OT8, you've given Scientology probably at least a million dollars. That's how they're sitting on top of an empire. If you haven't seen Leah Remini's series on Scientology, you ought to watch it because it's an example of what Peter is talking about. Look, I'm not making this up, you guys. If, if you've come in here tonight and you think, well, this is, this is a little strong, this is a little harsh, I'm just simply telling you what Peter said was happening in his day. It hasn't stopped. There's distortion. So what should we do in response to it, you might ask? Well, we're told in the last two verses, you, therefore, if you're a believer tonight, this is for you, beloved, and you need to know that you are loved by God. You're the beloved of God. This is why he would warn you. Knowing this beforehand, since you know this is true, that this kind of stuff's gonna be out there, what should you do? Be on your guard. Be careful. Test everything and hold fast to that which is true. If someone came to your door and tried to sell you some medicine, hey, this medicine uh, you have aches and pains? Oh, this medicine, just take two of these pills and it'll cure everything. How many of you would just take them right at the door? Okay, okay. It'll help me? Yeah. Take them. No, you don't swallow that stuff just because some salesman's at your door. What would you do? Probably go on the internet and do a little research. You'd probably uh, check the ingredients on the back of the bottle. Give, give a few pills to a loved one, see what happens to them. <laughs> Just kidding. Strike that last one off the record. <laughs> right? You're not gonna just go and drink something in without checking it out. Why would you do that spiritually? Oh, well, those people are sincere. They, they came to my door and they told me they believe the same things we do. Go, 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 go. You don't do that in real life when it comes to medicine. Why would you do it for your soul? Now, I'm not saying that everybody who shows up and tries to sh share spiritual truth, you should be looking at them like this. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, don't be overly like critical, but be wise. Be on your guard. Use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
Test it. Be on your guard, lest being carried away, middle of 17, by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Look, there's something at stake here. If you buy it, if you swallow it, if you take the bait, here's what's gonna happen to you. You will fall from your own stability. You will get shaky. How many of you, if I were to ask you, did you ever run into a doctrine that shook you? Did you ever run into somebody who came along somewhere in your Christian journey and said, oh, what you believe about that, it's actually this, and let me show you. And they took a few verses out of context and it shook you. Anybody? I, I think that's happened to a lot of us. Why? Because maybe we didn't have the wealth of knowledge we have now. I'll tell you a story. Year, many years ago, my sister, I was a brand new Christian. My sister was interacting with some people from the Boston LA Church of Christ. What they teach is that you must be baptized by their pastor in their baptismal according to their formula or you're not saved. And so I said, oh yeah, I'll talk to this guy. So I showed up. I'd been a Christian for about six months. Sure, I know the Bible. Well, this guy started spouting Bible verses and showing verses that seem to indicate that baptism saves you. And I had no answer for what he was arguing because I didn't know my Bible well enough. And I walked away from that conversation a bit confused. Well, had I read just the verses around the verses he was quoting, I would have seen that what he was saying was false. And here's where he was going. You guys need to join our church, get baptized by our pastor in our baptismal, or you're not saved. That was his message to us. And I didn't know enough to be able to defend me or my sister when it came to a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, this guy may have believed what he was saying. I don't I don't know. But our author knows something about falling from stability. Peter, Jesus is getting ready to die. And here's the conversation. He says, Peter says, though all fall away from you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, this very night before the cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter says to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Matthew 26, 31 through 35. How did Peter do on that night? He denied the Lord three times. He was confident, but he fell from his steadfastness. He fell because of pressure. Jesus said later, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. I want you to turn to a verse because I think this will be helpful for our setting. Luke 22, same kind of setting here. Jesus is getting ready to die. He's been warning the disciples. He's been telling Peter what's going on. And here's what he says. This is Luke 22. Is anybody else warm in here? You guys okay? Just me? Okay. Luke 22, 31. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, by the way, that name means to hear. Simeon, or Simon, means to hear. Simon, Simon, behold, Luke twenty two thirty one. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I, oh, Peter had to breathe a little easier after this. But I, Jesus says to Peter, have what? I've prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. 
Peter failed, but he did not lose his faith. Let me just say this to you. If you failed recently, it doesn't mean that you lost your faith. It's possible to stumble and still be a believer, even though you fell on your face. So just because you made a mistake, and maybe even in some kind of context, you denied the Lord. You were overconfident. You thought you could stand strong in that situation, and you failed. It doesn't mean that you've lost your faith. But it does mean you've lost your stability. Now notice what happens. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, what's the command from Jesus? Strengthen your brothers. You could write in your Bible, stabilize your brothers. Strengthen them. Give them stability. And he said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you've denied three times that you know me. Peter failed miserably, but his faith did not fail, and he turned back to the Lord, and the Lord restored him. We have the record in John 21. And three times the Lord said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. And then he said what? Tend my sheep, stabilize my lambs, feed my flock, protect them, love them. That's what Peter's doing in this letter. That's what a shepherd does. He's willing to warn the flock of uh, wolves and sheep's clothing to give what? Stability. Because there's a lot of unstable believers who have been listening to unstable teachers. Second Peter 3, and we'll finish it up. And they're, they're not walking strong because they've been, they've been duped by false doctrine. Some years ago, I was in our church parking lot and a young man came to me and said, Pastor Michael, I think I've lost my salvation. Pastor Michael, I think I've lost my salvation. And I said, why do you think you've lost your salvation? Because I just heard a teaching on Hebrews 6 and I know, I just know I've lost my salvation. And there it says, if you did, it's impossible to renew you again to repentance. So I'd be worried. <laughs> I didn't say that. I said, well, why do you think you lost? I just heard Hebrews 6 and I, I just know I lost my salvation. I said, look, if you're concerned about it, you probably haven't lost it. But let's talk about it. We began to go through a, a very difficult passage. Some people believe Paul wrote it. Maybe that's what Peter was talking about. One of those hard to understand ones, right? That's a hard one. And he was all upset. Why? Because he had just listened to a teaching where someone said, oh, you've lost your salvation. And, and this guy's in the church parking lot, unstable as can be. Look, if my salvation is dependent on my performance, I ain't gonna sleep real good tonight. Because the, the Lord looks at my thoughts, what I fail to do when I know the right thing, my motives, what I whisper when nobody else is listening. Look, I want all the grace I can get. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not an excuse for sin, but you guys understand what I'm talking about. And some people have been destabilized by false teaching. There are people who will come to your door tomorrow. You ask them, hey, if you die tonight, do you know where you're going? No, I don't know. You don't know where you're going and you've come to my door to tell me about your teaching and you don't know where you're going? Why would I become one of you when you don't even know where you're going? Hello? Do you think that you're gonna end up in heaven or be saved? I don't know. Well, then if you don't know, I ain't signing on the dotted line. 
Because if you don't know, how am I going to know? I'd like to know. See, when I exit this planet, I'd like to know where I'm going. And the apostle said, how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You're going to come if you come through me. Don't be destabilized by false teaching. Look, I know there's profit in group Bible study, but I would be careful that at least you have one person who's a teacher in that small group Bible study who actually knows a little bit of context and understands the scriptures. Because if you sit around a table with other friends who are as ignorant <laughs> as you, and I'm sorry, but if you're ignorant, the shoe fits, and you say, what do you think about that scripture? Well, what it means to me. Well, look, there can be some value if you're on par with what it means, but if what it means to you ain't what it means, it ain't a hill of beans. <laughs> and yes, I just made that up. It was not in my notes. Don't be destabilized by unhealthy, distorted, false teaching. I mean, one day you were walking strong and now you're going to let a person come out of left field and destabilize you and now you're going to walk around like you're on walking in potholes? Why would you do that? But that is what happens. You say, well, what do you do? How do you get stable? Well, verse 18 is the final verse and it's the theme verse for the whole book. But grow, if you don't want this to happen to you, grow in the grace and knowledge, it doesn't just say of the Bible, what's it say? Of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Warren Wearsby, I think, put it well, quote, he says, how easy it is to grow in knowledge, but not in grace. All of us know far more of the Bible than we really live. Knowledge without grace is a terrible weapon. And grace without knowledge can be very shallow. But when we combine grace and knowledge, we have a marvelous tool for building our lives and for building the church, close quote. You see, you need to grow in both. How do you grow in grace? Grace is a gift, but grace is also another word for the power of God. Paul prays about the thorn in his flesh three times, and Jesus says, my grace is what? Sufficient for you. That means grace is in some settings, synonymous with power. Grace is the power of God unleashed in your life. You live as a Christian in a covenant of grace. It's your position before God, and it's the power of God, grace. So you need to grow in grace. How? Jesus is the dispenser of grace. The closer you get to him, the more grace power you're gonna have in your life. Have you realized that? I think we all have. So grow in grace and knowledge. We have something more sure, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. It's God's word. God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. You get to know the word. You get to know the God of the word. It keeps you on the path. You stay away from your Bible because you're not living the way you're supposed to. This book will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this book, right? And so we need to grow. If you took the last six months of your life and you asked, how am I growing? How much have I grown in the last six months? 
If your best stories are from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, then you may want to go back and say, Lord, I want to grow now. You never stop growing, never. There's so much to plumb here. There's so much more to go deeper with the Lord in prayer, in study of the word, in steps of faith. Amen? That's what the Lord wants to do in your life. Peter ends the letter the way it should end. To him, and Jesus is at the center of the verse, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity or forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, thank you so much for your living word. Thank you for the precious folks that have come out tonight to uh, study it, to be more anchored in truth. The more they're anchored in truth, the more they're anchored in you. Grace and knowledge do go together, Lord. And thank you so much that the more we get to know you personally, the more grace you pour into our lives. You're a God, you're the God of all grace. And you pour grace upon grace into your people. Would you keep your head and heart bowed? Let me ask you a question. Have you tasted that grace? Do you know tonight that if you were to leave this planet, if Jesus was to come tonight, that you're saved? Do you know that you've tasted of that grace? If you have, you know. If you haven't, you can. It's something like this. And I would ask you at this moment not to, not to worry about anything else except do you know him? Do you know the God of all grace? If you haven't met him, it's something like this. Pray it right where you are. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I thank you that you came to this world, prayed if it's you, that you died on that cross for me, that you rose from the dead, that you conquered sin and death and you did it for me and you did it for love. I receive you as my Savior and my Lord. Let me be born again of your Holy Spirit. I repent of doing things my way. I wanna live for you. Help me to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I give you my life and all that I am. In Jesus' name. If you need to rededicate your life to God's path for you, maybe you've been a prodigal and you've been away. Maybe some of this hits really close to home because you got off course and you embraced a world religion or a cult and you got duped, but the Lord's brought you back home. Well, all you gotta do really is just say, Lord, I wanna get to know you so well that that'll never happen again. So help me to know you. And Lord, for the rest of the precious people of God, may you bless them, may you keep them, may your beautiful face shine on them, and may you give them peace. And as we move into this Easter weekend, may you bless them as they grow deeper and deeper in love with you. In Jesus' holy name I pray.